0: so much weight with my fellow citizens when I proposed new institutions or alterations in the old, and so much influence in public councils when I became a member, for I was but a bad speaker, never eloquent, subject to much hesitation in my choice of words, hardly correct in language, and yet I generally carried my points. How do Ben Franklin's methods work in business? Let's take two examples. Catherine A. Allred of Kings Mountain, North Carolina, is an industrial engineering supervisor for a yarn processing plant. She told one of our classes how she handled a sensitive problem before and after taking our training. Part of my responsibility, she reported, deals with setting up and maintaining incentive systems and standards for our operators so they can make more money by producing more yarn. The system we were using had worked fine when we had only two or three different types of yarn, but recently we had expanded our inventory and capabilities to enable us to run more than 12 different varieties. The present system was no longer adequate to pay the operators fairly for the work being performed and give them an incentive to increase production. I had worked up a new system which would enable us to pay the operator by the class of yarn she was running at any one particular time. With my new system in hand, I entered the meeting, determined to prove to the management that my system was the right approach. I told them in detail how they were wrong and showed where they were being unfair and how I had all the answers they needed. To say the least, I failed miserably. I had become so busy defending my position on the new system that I had left them no opening to graciously admit their problems on the old one. The issue was dead. After several sessions of this course, I realized all too well where I had made my mistakes. I called another meeting, and this time I asked where they felt their problems were. We discussed each point, and I asked them their opinion on which was the best way to proceed. With a few low-keyed suggestions at proper intervals, I let them develop my system by themselves. At the end of the meeting, when I actually presented my system, they enthusiastically accepted it. I'm convinced now that nothing good is accomplished and a lot of damage can be done if you tell a person straight out that he or she is wrong. You only succeed in stripping that person of self-dignity and making yourself an unwelcome part of any discussion. Let's take another example. And remember, these cases I'm citing are typical of the experiences of thousands of other people. R.V. Crowley was a salesman for a lumber company in New York. Crowley admitted that he had been telling hard-boiled lumber inspectors for years that they were wrong, and he'd won the arguments, too, but it hadn't done any good. For these lumber inspectors, said Mr. Crowley, are like baseball umpires. Once they make a decision, they never change it. Mr. Crowley saw that his firm was losing thousands of dollars through the arguments he won. So while taking my course, he resolved to change tactics and abandon arguments. With what results? Here's the story as he told it to fellow members of his class. One morning the phone rang in my office. A hot and bothered person at the other end proceeded to inform me that a car of lumber we had shipped into his plant was entirely unsatisfactory. His firm had stopped unloading and requested that we make immediate arrangements to remove the stock from their yard. After about one-fourth of the car had been unloaded, their lumber inspector reported that the lumber was running 55 percent below grade. Under the circumstances, they refused to accept it. I immediately started for his plant, and on the way turned over in my mind the best way to handle the situation. Ordinarily, under such circumstances, I should have quoted grading rules and tried as a result of my own experience and knowledge as a lumber inspector to convince the other inspector that the lumber was actually up to grade and that he was misinterpreting the rules in his inspection. However, I thought I would apply the principles learned in this training. When I arrived at the plant, I found the purchasing agent and the lumber inspector in a wicked humor, both set for an argument and a fight. We walked out to the car that was being unloaded, and I requested that they continue to unload so that I could see how things were going. I asked the inspector to go right ahead and lay out the rejects, as he had been doing, and to put the good pieces in another pile. After watching him for a while, it began to dawn on me that his inspection actually was much too strict and that he was misinterpreting the rules. This particular lumber was white pine, and I knew the inspector was thoroughly schooled in hardwoods, but not a competent, experienced inspector on white pine. A white pine happens to be my own strong suit, but did I offer any objection to the way he was grading the lumber? (laughs) None whatever. I kept on watching, and gradually began to ask questions as to why certain pieces were not satisfactory. I didn't for one instant insinuate that the inspector was wrong. I emphasized that my only reason for asking was in order that we could give his firm exactly what they wanted in future shipment. By asking questions in a very friendly, cooperative spirit and insisting continually that they were right in laying out boards not satisfactory to their purpose, I got him warmed up, and the strained relations between us began to thaw and melt away. An occasional carefully put remark on my part gave birth to the idea, in his mind, that possibly some of these rejected pieces were actually within the grade that they had bought, and that their requirements demanded a more expensive grade. I was very careful, however, not to let him think I was making an issue of this point. Gradually, his whole attitude changed. He finally admitted to me that he was not experienced on white pine, and began to ask me questions about each piece as it came out of the car. I'd explain why such and such a piece came within the grade specified, but kept on insisting that we did not want him to take it if it was unsuitable for their purpose. He finally got to the point where he felt guilty every time he put a piece in the rejected pile. And at last he saw that the mistake was on their part, for not having specified as good a grade as they needed. The ultimate outcome was that he went through the entire car load again after I left, accepted the whole lot, and we received a check in full. In that one instance alone, a little tact and the determination to refrain from telling the other man he was wrong saved my company a substantial amount of cash, and it would be hard to place a money value on the goodwill that was saved. Martin Luther King was asked how, as a pacifist, he could be an admirer of Air Force General Daniel Chappie James, then the nation's highest-ranking black officer. Dr. King replied, I judge people by their own principles, not by my own. In a similar way, General Robert E. Lee once spoke to the President of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, in the most glowing terms about a certain officer under his command. Another officer in attendance was astonished. General, he said, do you not know that the man of whom you speak so highly is one of your bitterest enemies who misses no opportunity to malign you? Yes, replied General Lee, but the president asked my opinion of him. He did not ask for his opinion of me. By the way, I'm not revealing anything new in this chapter. Two thousand years ago, Jesus said, Agree with thine adversary quickly. And 2,200 years before Christ was born, King Octoy of Egypt gave his son some shrewd advice, advice that is sorely needed today. Be diplomatic, counseled the king. It will help you gain your point. In other words, don't argue with your customer or your spouse or your adversary. Don't tell them they are wrong. Don't get them stirred up. Use a little diplomacy. Principle 2. Show respect for the other person's opinions. Never say, you're wrong. Chapter 3. If you're wrong, admit it. Within a minute's walk of my house, there was a wild stretch of virgin timber where the blackberry thickets foamed white in the springtime, where the squirrels nested and reared their young, and the horseweeds grew as tall as a horse's head. This unspoiled woodland was called Forest Park, and it was a forest, probably not much different in appearance from what it was when Columbus discovered America. I frequently walked in this park with Rex, my little Boston bulldog. He was a friendly, harmless little hound, and since we rarely met anyone in the park, I took Rex along without a leash or muzzle. One day, we encountered a mounted policeman in the park, a policeman itching to show his authority. "'What do you mean by letting that dog run loose in the park "'without a muzzle and leash?' he reprimanded me. "'Don't you know it's against the law?' "'Well, yes, I know it is,' I replied softly, "'but I didn't think he'd do any harm out there.' "'You didn't think? You didn't think?' "'The law doesn't give a tinker's damn about what you think. "'That dog might kill a squirrel or bite a child. "'Oh, I'm going to let you off this time, "'but if I catch this dog out here again without a muzzle and leash, "'you will have to tell it to the judge.' I meekly promised to obey, and I did obey for a few times. But Rex didn't like the muzzle, and neither did I, so we decided to take a chance. Everything was lovely for a while, and then we struck a snag. Rex and I raced over the brow of a hill one afternoon, and there, suddenly, to my dismay, I saw the majesty of the law astride a bay horse. Rex was out in front, heading straight for the officer. I was in for it. I knew it. So I didn't wait until the policeman started talking. I beat him to it. I said, "'Officer, you've caught me red-handed. "'I'm guilty. "'I have no alibis, no excuses. "'You warned me last week "'that if I brought the dog out here again without a muzzle, "'you'd find me.' "'Well, now,' the policeman responded in a soft tone, "'I know it's a temptation "'to let a little dog like that have a run out here "'when nobody's around.' "'Sure, it's a temptation,' I replied, "'but it is against the law.' "'Well, a little dog like that isn't going to harm anybody,' the policeman remonstrated. no, but he may kill squirrels,' I said. "'Well, now, I think you're taking this a bit too seriously,' he told me. "'I'll tell you what you do. "'You just let him run over the hill there where I can't see him, "'and we'll forget all about it.' "'That policeman, being human, wanted a feeling of importance.' so when I began to condemn myself, the only way he could nourish his self-esteem was to take the magnanimous attitude of showing mercy. But suppose I'd tried to defend myself. Well, did you ever argue with a policeman? But instead of breaking lances with him, I admitted that he was absolutely right and I was absolutely wrong. I admitted it quickly, openly, and with enthusiasm. The affair terminated graciously in my taking his side, and his taking my side. Lord Chesterfield himself could hardly have been more gracious than this mounted policeman, who only a week previously had threatened to have the law on me. If we know we are going to be rebuked anyhow, isn't it far better to beat the other person to it and do it ourselves? Isn't it much easier to listen to self-criticism than to bear condemnation from alien lips? Say about yourself all the derogatory things you know the other person is thinking or wants to say or intends to say and say them before that person has a chance to say them. The chances are a hundred to one that a generous, forgiving attitude will be taken and your mistakes will be minimized just as the mounted policeman did with me and Rex. Ferdinand E. Warren, a commercial artist, used this technique to win the goodwill of a petulant, scolding buyer of art. It is important in making drawings for advertising and publishing purposes to be precise and very exact, Mr. Warren said as he told the story. Some art editors demand that their commissions be executed immediately, and in these cases, some slight error is liable to occur. I knew one art director in particular who was always delighted to find fault with some little thing. I have often left his office in disgust, not because of the criticism, but because of his method of attack. Recently, I delivered a rush job to this editor, and he phoned me to call at his office immediately. He said something was wrong. When I arrived, I found just what I had anticipated and dreaded. He was hostile, gloating over his chance to criticize. He demanded with heat why I had done so-and-so. My opportunity had come to apply the self-criticism I'd been studying about, so I said, Mr. So-and-so, if what you say is true, I am at fault and there is absolutely no excuse for my blunder. I have been doing drawings for you long enough to know better. I am ashamed of myself. Immediately, he started to defend me. Yes, you're right, but after all, this isn't a serious mistake. It's only, and I interrupted him, any mistake I said may be costly, and they're all irritating. He started to break in, but I wouldn't let him. I was having a grand time. For the first time in my life I was criticizing myself, and I loved it. I should have been more careful, I continued. You give me a lot of work, and you deserve the best, so I'm going to do this drawing all over. No, no, he protested. I wouldn't think of putting you to all that trouble. He praised my work, assured me he wanted only a minor change, and that my slight error hadn't cost his firm any money, and after all, it was a mere detail not worth worrying about. My eagerness to criticize myself took all the fight out of him. He ended up by taking me to lunch, and before we parted he gave me a check and another commission. There's a certain degree of satisfaction in having the courage to admit one's errors. It not only clears the air of guilt and defensiveness, but often helps solve the problem created by the error. Bruce Harvey of Albuquerque, New Mexico, had incorrectly authorized payment of full wages to an employee on sick leave. When he discovered his error, he brought it to the attention of the employee and explained that to correct the mistake, he would have to reduce his next paycheck by the entire amount of the overpayment. The employee pleaded that as that would cause him a serious financial problem, could the money be repaid over a period of time? In order to do this, Harvey explained, he would have to obtain his supervisor's approval. And this, I knew, reported Harvey, would result in a boss-type explosion. While trying to decide how to handle the situation better, I realized that the whole mess was my fault, and I would have to admit it to my boss. I walked into his office told him that I had made a mistake, and then informed him of the complete facts. He replied in an explosive manner that it was the fault of their personnel department. I repeated that it was my fault. He exploded again about carelessness in the accounting department. Again, I explained it was my fault. He blamed two other people in the office, but each time I reiterated that it was my fault. Finally, he looked at me and said, Okay, it was your fault. Now straighten it out. The error was corrected, and nobody got into trouble. I felt great because I was able to handle a tense situation and had the courage not to seek alibis. My boss has had more respect for me ever since. Any fool can try to defend his or her mistakes, and most fools do. But it raises one above the herd and gives one a feeling of nobility and exultation to admit one's mistakes. For example, one of the most beautiful things that history records about Robert E. Lee is the way he blamed himself and only himself for the failure of Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg. Pickett's Charge was undoubtedly the most brilliant and picturesque attack that ever occurred in the Western world. General George E. Pickett himself was picturesque. He wore his hair so long that his auburn locks almost touched his shoulders. And, like Napoleon in his Italian campaigns, he wrote ardent love letters almost daily while on the battlefield. His devoted troops cheered him that tragic July afternoon as he rode off jauntily toward the Union lines, his cap set at a rakish angle over his right ear. They cheered, and they followed him, man-touching man, rank-pressing rank, with banners flying and bayonets gleaming in the sun. It was a gallant sight, daring, magnificent. A murmur of admiration ran through the Union lines as they beheld it. Pickett's troops swept forward at an easy trot, through orchard and cornfield, across a meadow and over a ravine. All the time, the enemy's cannon was tearing ghastly holes in their ranks, but on they pressed, grim, irresistible. Suddenly the Union infantry rose from behind the stone wall on Cemetery Ridge where they had been hiding and fired volley after volley into Pickett's onrushing troops. The crest of the hill was a sheet of flame, a slaughterhouse, a blazing volcano. In a few minutes all of Pickett's brigade commanders except one were down and four-fifths of his 5,000 men had fallen general lewis a armistead leading the troops in the final plunge ran forward vaulted over the stone wall and waving his cap on top of his sword shouted give em steel boys they did they leaped over the wall bayoneted their enemies smashed skulls with clubbed muskets and planted the battle flags of the south on cemetery ridge the banner waved there only for a moment but that moment brief as it was recorded the high-water mark of the confederacy Pickett's Charge, brilliant, heroic, was nevertheless the beginning of the end. Lee had failed. He could not penetrate the North, and he knew it. The South was doomed. Lee was so saddened, so shocked, that he sent in his resignation and asked Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, to appoint a younger, abler man. If Lee had wanted to blame the disastrous failure of Pickett's Charge on someone else, he could have found a score of alibis. Some of his division commanders had failed him. The cavalry hadn't arrived in time to support the infantry attack. This had gone wrong, and that had gone awry. But Lee was far too noble to blame others. As pickets beaten and bloody troops struggled back to the Confederate lines, Robert E. Lee rode out to meet them all alone and greeted them with a self-condemnation that was little short of sublime. All this has been my fault, he confessed. I, and I alone, have lost this battle. Few generals in all history had had the courage and character to admit that. Michael Chong, who teaches our course in Hong Kong, told of how the Chinese culture presents some special problems and how sometimes it is necessary to recognize that the benefits of applying a principle may be more advantageous than maintaining an old tradition. He had one middle-aged class member who had been estranged from his son for many years. The father had been an opium addict but now was cured. In Chinese tradition, an older person cannot take the first step. The father felt that it was up to his son to take the initiative toward a reconciliation. In an early session, he told the class about the grandchildren he had never seen and how much he desired to be reunited with his son. His classmates, all Chinese, understood his conflict between his desire and long-established tradition. The father felt that young people should have respect for their elders, and that he was right in not giving in to his desire, but to wait for his son to come to him. Toward the end of the course, the father again addressed the class. "'I have pondered this problem,' he said. "'Dale Carnegie says if you are wrong, admit it quickly and emphatically. "'It is too late for me to admit it quickly, but I can admit it emphatically.'" I wronged my son. He was right in not wanting to see me and to expel me from his life. I may lose face by asking a younger person's forgiveness, but I was at fault, and it is my responsibility to admit this." The class applauded and gave him their full support. At the next class, he told how he went to his son's house, asked for and received forgiveness, and was now embarked on a new relationship with his son, his daughter-in-law, and the grandchildren he had met at last. Elbert Hubbard was one of the most original authors who ever stirred up a nation. His stinging sentences often aroused fierce resentment. But Hubbard, with his rare skill for handling people, frequently turned his enemies into friends. For example, when some irritated reader wrote in to say that he didn't agree with such-and-such an article and ended by calling Hubbard this and that, Elbert Hubbard would answer like this, Come to think it over, I don't entirely agree with it myself. Not everything I wrote yesterday appeals to me today. I am glad to learn what you think on the subject. The next time you're in the neighborhood, you must visit us, and we'll get this subject threshed out for all time. So here is a handclasp over the miles, and I am yours sincerely. What could you say to a man who treated you like that? When we're right, let's try to win people gently and tactfully to our way of thinking. And when we're wrong and that will be surprisingly often if we're honest with ourselves, let's admit our mistakes quickly and with enthusiasm. Not only will that technique produce astonishing results, but believe it or not, it is a lot more fun under the circumstances than trying to defend oneself. Remember the old proverb, by fighting you never get enough, but by yielding you get more than you expected. Principle 3. If you're wrong, admit it quickly and emphatically. CHAPTER Four: A DROP OF HONEY If your temper is aroused, and you tell him a thing or two, you'll have a fine time unloading your feelings. But what about the other person? Will he share your pleasure? Will your belligerent tones, your hostile attitude, make it easy for him to agree with you? If you come at me with your fists doubled, said Woodrow Wilson, I think I can promise you that mine will double as fast as yours. But if you come to me and say, Let us sit down and take counsel together, and, if we differ from each other, understand why it is that we differ, just what the points at issue are, we will presently find that we are not so far apart after all, that the points on which we differ are few, and the points on which we agree are many, and that if we only have the patience, and the candor, and the desire to get together, We will get together. Nobody appreciated the truth of Woodrow Wilson's statement more than John D. Rockefeller, Jr. Back in 1915, Rockefeller was the most fiercely despised man in Colorado. One of the bloodiest strikes in the history of American industry had been shocking the state for two terrible years. Irate, belligerent miners were demanding higher wages from the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company. Rockefeller controlled that company. Property had been destroyed, troops had been called out, blood had been shed, strikers had been shot, their bodies riddled with bullets. At a time like that, with the air seething with hatred, Rockefeller wanted to win the strikers to his way of thinking. And he did it. How? Here's the story. After weeks spent in making friends, Rockefeller addressed the representatives of the strikers. This speech, in its entirety, is a masterpiece. It produced astonishing results. It calmed the tempestuous waves of hate that threatened to engulf Rockefeller. It won him a host of admirers. It presented facts in such a friendly manner that the strikers went back to work without saying another word about the increase in wages for which they had fought so violently. The opening of that remarkable speech follows. Note how it fairly glows with friendliness. Rockefeller, remember, was talking to men who, a few days previously, had wanted to hang him by the neck to a sour apple tree. Yet he couldn't have been more gracious, more friendly, if he had addressed a group of medical missionaries. His speech was radiant with such phrases as, I am proud to be here, having visited in your homes, met many of your wives and children. We meet here not as strangers, but as friends." "'Spirit of mutual friendship, our common interests. "'It is only by your courtesy that I am here. "'This is a red-letter day in my life,' Rockefeller began. "'It is the first time I have ever had the good fortune "'to meet the representatives of the employees of this great company, "'its officers and superintendents, together, "'and I can assure you that I am proud to be here "'and that I shall remember this gathering as long as I live.' Had this meeting been held two weeks ago, I should have stood here a stranger to most of you, recognizing a few faces. Having had the opportunity last week of visiting all the camps in the southern coal field, and of talking individually with practically all of the representatives except those who were away, having visited in your homes, met many of your wives and children, we meet here not as strangers, but as friends." and it is in that spirit of mutual friendship that I am glad to have this opportunity to discuss with you our common interests. Since this is a meeting of the officers of the company and the representatives of the employees, it is only by your courtesy that I am here, for I am not so fortunate as to be either one or the other, and yet I feel that I am intimately associated with you men, for, in a sense, I represent both the stockholders and the directors. Isn't that a superb example of the fine art of making friends out of enemies? Suppose Rockefeller had taken a different tack. Suppose he had argued with those miners and hurled devastating facts in their faces. Suppose he had told them by his tones and insinuations that they were wrong. Suppose that by all the rules of logic he had proved that they were wrong. What would have happened? More anger would have been stirred up, more hatred, more revolt. If a man's heart is rankling with discord and ill-feeling toward you, you can't win him to your way of thinking with all the logic in Christendom. Scolding parents and domineering bosses and husbands and nagging wives ought to realize that people don't want to change their minds. They can't be forced or driven to agree with you or me, but they may possibly be led to if we are gentle and friendly, ever so gentle and ever so friendly. Lincoln said that, in effect, over a hundred years ago. Here are his words. It is an old and true maxim that a drop of honey catches more flies than a gallon of gall. So with men, if you would win a man to your cause, first convince him that you are his sincere friend. Therein is a drop of honey that catches his heart, which, say what you will, is the great high road to his reason. Business executives have learned that it pays to be friendly to strikers. For example, when 2,500 employees in the white Motor company's plant struck for higher wages and a union shop, Robert F. Black, then president of the company, didn't lose his temper and condemn and threaten and talk of tyranny and communists. He actually praised the strikers he published an advertisement in the Cleveland Papers, complimenting them on the peaceful way in which they laid down their tools. Finding the strike pickets idle, he bought them a couple of dozen baseball bats and gloves and invited them to play ball on vacant lots. For those who preferred bowling, he rented a bowling alley. This friendliness on Mr. Black's part did what friendliness always does. It begot friendliness." So the strikers borrowed brooms, shovels, and rubbish carts and began picking up matches, papers, cigarette stubs, and cigar butts around the factory. Imagine it. Imagine strikers tidying up the factory grounds while battling for higher wages and recognition of the Union. Such an event had never been heard of before in the long, tempestuous history of American labor wars. That strike ended with a compromise settlement within a week, ended without any ill-feeling or rancor. Daniel Webster, who looked like a god and talked like Jehovah, was one of the most successful advocates who ever pleaded a case, yet he ushered in his most powerful arguments with such friendly remarks as, it will be for the jury to consider. This may perhaps be worth thinking of. Here are some facts that I trust you will not lose sight of, or... You, with your knowledge of human nature, will easily see the significance of these facts. No bulldozing, no high-pressure methods, no attempt to force his opinions on others, Webster used the soft-spoken, quiet, friendly approach, and it helped to make him famous. You may never be called on to settle a strike or address a jury, but you may want to get your rent reduced. Will the friendly approach help you then? Let's see. O.L. Straub, an engineer, wanted to get his rent reduced, and he knew his landlord was hard-boiled. I wrote him, Mr. Straub said in a speech before the class, notifying him that I was vacating my apartment as soon as my lease expired. The truth was I didn't want to move. I wanted to stay if I could get my rent reduced, but the situation seemed hopeless. Other tenants had tried and failed. Everyone told me that the landlord was extremely difficult to deal with, But I said to myself, I'm studying a course in how to deal with people, so I'll try it on him and see how it works. He and his secretary came to see me as soon as he got my letter. I met him at the door with a friendly greeting. I fairly bubbled with goodwill and enthusiasm. I didn't begin talking about how high the rent was. I began talking about how much I liked his apartment house. Believe me, I was hearty in my approbation and lavish in my praise. I complimented him on the way he ran the building, and I told him I should like so much to stay for another year, but I couldn't afford it. He evidently never had such a reception from a tenant. He hardly knew what to make of it. Then he started to tell me his troubles. Complaining tenants, one had written him 14 letters, some of them positively insulting. Another threatened to break his lease unless the landlord kept the man on the floor above from snoring. What a relief it is, he said, to have a satisfied tenant like you. And then, without my even asking him to do it, he offered to reduce my rent a little. I wanted more, so I named the figure I could afford to pay, and he accepted without a word. As he was leaving, he turned to me and asked, What decorating can I do for you? If I tried to get the rent reduced by the methods the other tenants were using, I am positive I would have met with the same failure they encountered. It was the friendly, sympathetic, appreciative approach that won. Dean Woodcock of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, is the superintendent of a department of the local electric company. His staff was called upon to repair some equipment on top of a pole, This type of work had formerly been performed by a different department and had only recently been transferred to Woodcock's section. Although his people had been trained in the work, this was the first time they ever actually had been called upon to do it. Everybody in the organization was interested in seeing if and how they could handle it. Mr. Woodcock, several of his subordinate managers, and members of the other departments of the utility went to see the operation. Many cars and trucks were there and a number of people were standing around watching the two lone men on top of the pole. Glancing around, Woodcock noticed a man up the street getting out of his car with a camera. He began taking pictures of the scene. Utility people are extremely conscious of public relations and suddenly Woodcock realized what this setup looked like to the man with the camera. Overkill, dozens of people being called out to do a two-person job. He strolled up the street to the photographer. I see you're interested in our operation. Yes, and my mother will be more than interested. She owns stock in your company. This will be an eye-opener for her. She may even decide her investment was unwise. I've been telling her for years that there's a lot of waste motion in companies like yours. This proves it. The newspapers might like these pictures, too. It does look like it, doesn't it? I'd think the same thing in your position. But this is a unique situation. And Dean Woodcock went on to explain how this was the first job of this type for his department and how everybody from executives down was interested. He assured the man that under normal conditions, two people could handle the job. The photographer put away his camera, shook Woodcock's hand, and thanked him for taking the time to explain the situation to him. Dean Woodcock's friendly approach saved his company much embarrassment and bad publicity. Another member of one of our classes, Gerald H. Wynn of Littleton, New Hampshire, reported how, by using a friendly approach, he obtained a very satisfactory settlement on a damage claim. Early in the spring, he reported, before the ground had thawed from the winter freezing, there was an unusually heavy rainstorm, and the water, which normally would have run off to nearby ditches and storm drains along the road, took a new course onto a building lot where i just built a new home not being able to run off, the water pressure built up around the foundation of the house. The water forced itself under the concrete basement floor, causing it to explode, and the basement filled with water. This ruined the furnace and the hot water heater. The cost to repair this damage was in excess of $2,000. I had no insurance to cover this type of damage. However, I soon found out that the owner of the subdivision had neglected to put in a storm drain near the house, which could have prevented this problem. I made an appointment to see him. During the 25-mile trip to his office, I carefully reviewed the situation, and remembering the principles I learned in this course, I decided that showing my anger would not serve any worthwhile purpose. When I arrived, I kept very calm and started by talking about his recent vacation to the West Indies. Then, when I felt the timing was right, I mentioned the little problem of water damage. He quickly agreed to do his share in helping to correct the problem. A few days later, he called and said he would pay for the damage and also put in a storm drain to prevent the same thing from happening in the future. Even though it was the fault of the owner of the subdivision, if I had not begun in a friendly way, there would have been a great deal of difficulty in getting him to agree to the total liability." Years ago, when I was a barefoot boy walking through the woods to a country school out in northwest Missouri, I read a fable about the sun and the wind. They quarreled about which was the stronger, and the wind said, I'll prove I am. See the old man down there with a coat? I can get that coat off him quicker than you can. So the sun went behind a cloud, and the wind blew until it was almost a tornado. But the harder it blew, the tighter the old man clutched his coat to him. Finally, the wind calmed down and gave up, and then the sun came out from behind the clouds and smiled kindly on the old man. Presently, he mopped his brow and pulled off his coat. The sun then told the wind that gentleness and friendliness were always stronger than fury and force. The use of gentleness and friendliness is demonstrated day after day by people who have learned that a drop of honey catches more flies than a gallon of gall. F. Gale Connor of Lutherville, Maryland, proved this when he had to take his four-month-old car to the service department of the car dealer for the third time. He told our class, "'It was apparent that talking to, reasoning with, or shouting at the service manager was not going to lead to a satisfactory resolution of my problems. I walked over to the showroom and asked to see the agency owner, Mr. White. After a short wait, I was ushered into Mr. White's office.' I introduced myself and explained to him that I had bought my car from his dealership because of the recommendation of friends who had had previous dealings with him. I was told that his prices were very competitive and that his service was outstanding. He smiled with satisfaction as he listened to me. Then I explained the problem that I was having with the service department. I thought you might want to be aware of any situation that might tarnish your fine reputation, I added. He thanked me for calling this to his attention and assured me that my problem would be taken care of. Not only did he personally get involved, but he also lent me his car to use while mine was being repaired. Aesop was a Greek slave who lived at the court of Croesus and spun immortal fables 600 years before Christ. Yet the truths he taught about human nature are just as true in Boston and Birmingham now as they were 26 centuries ago in Athens. The sun can make you take off your coat more quickly than the wind, and kindliness, the friendly approach, and appreciation can make people change their minds more readily than all the bluster and storming in the world. Remember what Lincoln said, "'A drop of honey catches more flies,' than a gallon of gall. Principle 4. Begin in a friendly way. Chapter 5. The Secret of Socrates. In talking with people, don't begin by discussing the things on which you differ. Begin by emphasizing and keep on emphasizing the things on which you agree. Keep emphasizing, if possible, that you are both striving for the same end and that your only difference is one of method and not of purpose. Get the other person saying yes, yes at the outset. Keep your opponent, if possible, from saying no. A no response, according to Professor Overstreet, is a most difficult handicap to overcome. When you have said no, all your pride of personality demands that you remain consistent with yourself. You may later feel that the no was ill-advised Nevertheless, there is your precious pride to consider. Once having said a thing, you feel you must stick to it. Hence, it is of the very greatest importance that a person be started in the affirmative direction. The skillful speaker gets at the outset a number of yes responses. This sets the psychological process of the listeners moving in the affirmative direction. It's like the movement of a billiard ball propel in one direction, and it takes some force to deflect it, far more force to send it back in the opposite direction. The psychological patterns here are quite clear. When a person says no and really means it, he or she is doing far more than saying a word of two letters. The entire organism, glandular, nervous, muscular, gathers itself together into a condition of rejection. There is, usually in minutes, but sometimes in observable degree, a physical withdrawal or readiness for withdrawal. The whole neuromuscular system, in short, sets itself on guard against acceptance. When, to the contrary, a person says yes, none of the withdrawal activities takes place. The organism is in a forward-moving, accepting, open attitude. Hence, the more yeses we can at the very outset induce, the more likely we are to succeed in capturing the attention for our ultimate proposal. It is a very simple technique, this yes response, and yet how much it is neglected. It often seems as if people get a sense of their own importance by antagonizing others at the outset. Get a student to say no at the beginning or a customer, child, husband, or wife, and it takes the wisdom and the patience of angels to transform that bristling negative into an affirmative. The use of this yes-yes technique enabled James Eberson, who was a teller at the Greenwich Savings Bank in New York City, to secure a prospective customer who might otherwise have been lost. This man came in to open an account, said Mr. Eberson, and I gave him our usual form to fill out. Some of the questions he answered willingly, but there were others he flatly refused to answer. Before I began the study of human relations, I would have told this prospective depositor that if he refused to give the bank this information, we should have to refuse to accept this account. I'm ashamed that I've been guilty of doing that very thing in the past. Naturally, an ultimatum like that made me feel good. I had shown who was boss, that the bank's rules and regulations couldn't be floated but that sort of attitude certainly didn't give a feeling of welcome and importance to the man who'd walked in to give us his patronage. I resolved this morning to use a little horse sense. I resolved not to talk about what the bank wanted, but about what the customer wanted. And above all else, I was determined to get him saying yes, yes from the very start. So I agreed with him. I told him the information he refused to give was not absolutely necessary. However, I said, suppose you have money in this bank at your death. Wouldn't you like to have the bank transfer it to your next of kin, who's entitled to it according to law? Yes, of course, he replied. Don't you think, I continued, that it would be a good idea to give us the name of your next of kin so that in the event of your death, we could carry out your wishes without error or delay? Again, he said yes. The young man's attitude softened and changed, when he realized that we weren't asking for this information for our sake, but for his sake. Before leaving the bank, this young man not only gave me complete information about himself, but he opened, at my suggestion, a trust account, naming his mother as the beneficiary for his account, and he gladly answered all the questions concerning his mother also. I found that by getting him to say yes, yes from the outset, he forgot the issue at stake and was happy to do all the things that I suggested. Joseph Allison, a sales representative for Westinghouse Electric Company, had this story to tell. There was a man in my territory that our company was most eager to sell to. My predecessor had called on him for ten years without selling anything. When I took over the territory, I called steadily for three years without getting an order. Finally, after 13 years of calls and sales talk, we sold him a few motors. If these proved to be all right, an order for several hundred more would follow. Such was my expectation. Right? I knew they'd be all right. So when I called three weeks later, I was in high spirits. The chief engineer greeted me with this shocking announcement. Allison, I can't buy the remainder of the motors from you.' "'Why?' I asked in amazement. "'Why?' "'Because your motors are too hot. "'I can't put my hand on them.' "'I knew it wouldn't do any good to argue. "'I'd tried that sort of thing too long. "'So I thought of getting the yes-yes response. "'Well, now look, Mr. Smith,' I said. "'I agree with you a hundred percent. "'If those motors are running too hot, "'you ought not to buy any more of them. "'You must have motors that won't run any hotter than standards set by the National Electrical Manufacturers Association. Isn't that so?" He agreed it was. I'd gotten my first yes. The Electrical Manufacturers Association regulations say that a properly designed motor may have a temperature of 72 degrees Fahrenheit above room temperature. Is that correct? Yes, he agreed, that's quite correct. But your motors are much hotter. I didn't argue with him. I merely asked, How hot is the mill room? No, oh, he said, about 75 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, I replied, if the mill room is 75 degrees and you add 72 to that, that makes a total of 147 degrees Fahrenheit. Wouldn't you scald your hand if you held it under a spigot of hot water at a temperature of 147 degrees Fahrenheit? Again, he had to say yes. Well, I suggested, wouldn't it be a good idea to keep your hands off those motors? "'Oh, well, I guess you're right,' he admitted. "'We continued to chat for a while. "'Then he called his secretary "'and lined up approximately $35,000 worth of business "'for the ensuing month. "'It took me years "'and cost me countless thousands of dollars in lost business "'before I finally learned that it doesn't pay to argue, "'that it is much more profitable and much more interesting "'to look at things from the other person's viewpoint.' And to try to get that person saying yes, yes. Eddie Snow, who sponsors our courses in Oakland, California, tells how he became a good customer of a shop because the proprietor got him to say yes, yes. Eddie had become interested in bow hunting and had spent considerable money in purchasing equipment and supplies from a local bow store. When his brother was visiting him, he wanted to rent a bow for him from this store. The sales clerk told him they didn't rent bows, so Eddie phoned another bow store. Eddie described what happened. A very pleasant gentleman answered the phone. His response to my question for a rental was completely different from the other place, he said he was sorry, but they no longer rented bows because they couldn't afford to do so. He asked me if I'd rented before. I replied, yes, several years ago. He reminded me that I probably paid $25 to $30 for the rental. I said, yes, again. Then he asked if I was the kind of person who liked to save money. Naturally, I answered, yes. He went on to explain that they had sets with all the necessary equipment on sale for $34.95. I could buy a complete set for only $4.95 more than I could rent one. He explained that is why they had discontinued renting them. Did I think that was reasonable? My yes response led to a purchase of the set, and when I picked it up, I purchased several more items at this shop and have since become a regular customer. Socrates, the gadfly of Athens, was one of the greatest philosophers the world has ever known. He did something that only a handful of men in all history have been able to do. He sharply changed the whole course of human thought. And now, 24 centuries after his death, he is honored as one of the wisest persuaders who ever influenced this wrangling world. His method? Did he tell people they were wrong? Oh, no, not Socrates. He was far too adroit for that. His whole technique, now called the Socratic method, was based upon getting a yes, yes response. He asked questions with which his opponent would have to agree. He kept on winning one admission after another until he had an armful of yeses he kept on asking questions until finally without realizing it his opponents found themselves embracing a conclusion they would have bitterly denied a few minutes previously the next time we're tempted to tell someone he or she is wrong let's remember old socrates and ask a gentle question a question that will get the yes yes response the chinese have a proverb pregnant with the age-old wisdom of the orient He who treads softly goes far. They have spent 5,000 years studying human nature, those cultured Chinese, and they have garnered a lot of perspicacity. He who treads softly goes far. Principle 5. Get the other person saying yes, yes, immediately. Chapter 6. The Safety Valve in Handling Complaints. Most people trying to win others to their way of thinking do too much talking themselves. Let the other people talk themselves out. They know more about their business and problems than you do, so ask them questions. Let them tell you a few things. If you disagree with them, you may be tempted to interrupt, but don't. It's dangerous. They won't pay attention to you while they still have a lot of ideas of their own, crying for expression, so listen patiently and with an open mind. Be sincere about it. Encourage them to express their ideas fully. Does this policy pay in business? Let's see. Here is the story of a sales representative who was forced to try it. One of the largest automobile manufacturers in the United States was negotiating for a year's requirements of upholstery fabrics. Three important manufacturers had worked up fabrics in sample bodies. These had all been inspected by the executives of the motor company, and notice had been sent to each manufacturer saying that on a certain day a representative from each supplier would be given an opportunity to make a final plea for the contract. G.B.R., a representative of one manufacturer, arrived in town with a severe attack of laryngitis. When it came my turn to meet the executives in conference, Mr. R. said, as he related the story before one of my classes, I had lost my voice. I could barely whisper. I was ushered into a room and found myself face to face with the textile engineer, the purchasing agent, the director of sales, and the president of the company. I stood up and made a valiant effort to speak, but I couldn't do anything more than squeak. They were all seated around a table, so I wrote on a pad of paper, "'Gentlemen, I have lost my voice. I am speechless.' I'll do the talking for you, the president said. He did. He exhibited my samples and praised their good points. A lively discussion arose about the merits of my goods, and the president, since he was talking for me, took the position I would have had during the discussion. My sole participation consisted of smiles, nods, and a few gestures. As a result of this unique conference, I was awarded the contract, which called for over half a million yards of upholstery fabrics at an aggregate value of $1,600,000, the biggest order I had ever received. I know I would have lost the contract if I hadn't lost my voice, because I had the wrong idea about the whole proposition. I discovered, quite by accident, how richly it sometimes pays to let the other person do the talking. Letting the other person do the talking helps in family situations as well as in business. Barbara Wilson's relationship with her daughter, Lori, was deteriorating rapidly. Laurie, who had been a quiet, complacent child, had grown into an uncooperative, sometimes belligerent teenager. Mrs. Wilson lectured her, threatened her and punished her, but all to no avail. One day, Mrs. Wilson told one of our classes, I just gave up. Lori had disobeyed me and had left the house to visit her girlfriend before she had completed her chores. When she returned, I was about to scream at her for the ten-thousandth time, but I just didn't have the strength to do it. I just looked at her and said sadly, Why, Laurie, why? Lori noted my condition and in a calm voice asked, Do you really want to know? I nodded, and Lori told me, first hesitantly, and then it all flowed out. I had never listened to her. I was always telling her to do this or that, When she wanted to tell me her thoughts, feelings, ideas, I interrupted with more orders. I began to realize that she needed me not as a bossy mother, but as a confidant, an outlet for all her confusion about growing up, and all I'd been doing was talking when I should have been listening. I had never heard her. From that time on, I let her do all the talking she wanted. She tells me what is on her mind, and our relationship has improved immeasurably. She is, again, a cooperative person. A large advertisement appeared on the financial page of a New York newspaper, calling for a person with unusual ability and experience. Charles T. Kubelis answered the advertisement, sending his reply to a box number. A few days later, he was invited by letter to call for an interview. Before he called, he spent hours in Wall Street finding out everything possible about the person who had founded the business. During the interview, he remarked, I should be mighty proud to be associated with an organization with a record like yours. I understand you started 28 years ago with nothing but desk room and one stenographer. Is that true? Almost every successful person likes to reminisce about his early struggles, and this man was no exception. He talked for a long time about how he'd started with $450 in cash and an original idea. He told how he'd fought against discouragement and battled against ridicule, working Sundays and holidays 12 to 16 hours a day, how he finally won against all odds, until now the most important executives on Wall Street were coming to him for information and guidance. He was proud of such a record. He had a right to be, and he had a splendid time telling about it. Finally, he questioned Mr. Cabellus briefly about his experience, then called in one of his vice presidents and said, I think this is the person we're looking for. Mr. Kubelis had taken the trouble to find out about the accomplishments of his prospective employer. He showed an interest in the other person and his problems. He encouraged the other person to do most of the talking and made a favorable impression. Roy G. Bradley of Sacramento, California, had the opposite problem. He listened as a good prospect for a sales position talked himself into a job with Bradley's firm. Roy reported, Being a small brokerage firm, we had no fringe benefits, such as hospitalization, medical insurance, and pension. Every representative is an independent agent. We don't even provide leads for prospects, as we cannot advertise for them as our larger competitors do. Richard Pryor had the type of experience we wanted for this position, and he was interviewed first by my assistant, who told him about all the negatives related to this job. He seemed slightly discouraged when he came into my office. I mentioned the one benefit of being associated with my firm, that of being an independent contractor and therefore virtually being self-employed. As he talked about these advantages to me, he talked himself out of each negative thought he had when he came in for the interview. Several times it seemed as though he was half-talking to himself as he was thinking through each thought. At times, I was tempted to add to his thoughts. However, as the interview came to a close, I felt he had convinced himself, very much on his own, that he would like to work for my firm. Because I had been a good listener and let Dick do most of the talking, he was able to weigh both sides fairly in his mind. And he came to the positive conclusion, which was a challenge he created for himself. We hired him, and he has been an outstanding representative for our firm. Even our friends would much rather talk to us about their achievements than listen to us boast about ours. La Rochefoucauld, the French philosopher, said, If you want enemies, excel your friends. But if you want friends, let your friends excel you. Why is that true? Because when our friends excel us, they feel important.